time I sit there with you guys and hear for the first time and uh, come up here and try to respond. And um, wow, just the profound spiritual understanding and insight into Scripture. You sound like uh, someone who's been a believer for years, decades. But just uh, you're a new believer, but God has definitely given you just eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to comprehend and understand the gospel of Christ and its power. So we praise God for the power of the gospel to save save you, Alex, and uh, uh, you know your your testimony really encapsulated um, really all of our testimonies. I think all of us could identify with so much of what he said, and um, you know I look forward to again. You know just you're growing in Christ and how you will serve the Lord in the near and long term future. Praise God. And praise God, I mean, just thank God for all of you, for all the names that he mentioned. Not, you know, Paul mentions names in the scriptures, not to give honor to man, but to give honor to God who gave us such men and women to serve. So, um, we thank God for you, all, all of you who are part of the process and encouraging, sowing that seed, praying um, for, for Alex. And let's continue to pray for him this week. Let's pray for Alex. And again, before you forget, in case you've forgotten, let's pray for Bob for next weekend. Well, John 19, we're finishing, finishing out chapter 19. I think four more sermons to go, and then I'm going to check Republic. So, verses 38 through 42. 38 through 42. And our last study, our Lord gave His life as a propitiation for our sins. And verses 38 through 42 is the burial of Christ, our Lord's humble funeral. I'm sure by now, um, most, if not all of you, have attended funerals. Funerals are as old as the human race itself, and funerals serve many purposes. Helps the mourners confirm the reality and finality of death. It allows a community of mourners to come together and grieve and express their sorrow together. Instead of being separate, alone in their homes, we come together. And as a community, we weep together allows for that. It serves as an opportunity for emotional support, place of encouragement to all those who are grieving. A key purpose of funerals is that it allows people to honor their beloved in a special way. So it's an opportunity to honor and give respect to the deceased. A way for family and friends to display before the world their respect, admiration, and honor to the person who has passed away. Just by attending a funeral, by just being there, you're giving honor to the person who has passed by bringing flowers, bringing gifts, by openly mourning at the funeral, you're honoring the dead. Eulogy, remembering their lives, all done to honor the deceased. And greater the person, the greater the honor, right? And greater the funeral. Probably the largest funeral in recent memory in our country is um, Ronald Reagan's funeral uh, two years ago. 93 years old, the 40th president of the United States. President Reagan was called by many as the great communicator. He uh, brought us out of recession in the 80s. 
uh, fought the Cold War, and he won. He passed away on June 5th, 2004, and was a great man. So there was a gr- there was great honor given to him and a great funeral. President George W. Bush sent Air Force One to pick up his body and bring it over to Washington, D.C. A motorcade took the body to the National Cathedral for a state funeral. On that day, the whole nation, the nation's capital was shut down for a whole day. All government employees were given a holiday on the day of the funeral. The New York Stock Exchange, as well as all other major U.S. financial markets were closed for business on that Friday. The national flag, our flag, was raised at half-mast for 30 days following that funeral. They, he was uh, put in a 700-pound mahogany casket estimated to be over $14,000. Reagan's casket was carried by a military honor guard presenting all branches of the U.S. military into the lobby of the, of the uh, Library of Congress. All the dignitaries paid their respects. And then the doors of the Capitol were open to the public and the people passed by at a rate of 5,000 per hour. In all, about 106,000 paid their respects when Reagan lay in state. When his body was brought back to California, Simi Valley, at his library, another 100,000 people passed by to show their respect. respects. About 4,000 people gathered at the cathedral for the service. Dignitaries in our nation and abroad came to to honor this man, President Bush and his wife, H.W. Uh, Bush and Laura Bush was, were there, Gerald and Betty Ford, former presidents Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, Bill and Hillary Clinton, members of Congress, Senate, past and present senators. Foreign dignitaries from 165 nations flew in to Washington, D.C. to honor this man. Gorbachev, Thatcher, Prince Charles, representing Queen Elizabeth II, all came to honor this man. Burial, is a, burial and funeral is a sign of honor and respect to the deceased. And that mindset is heightened in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish culture. Burial is even more important to them than it is to us. In the culture and religion of the Jewish people, proper burial for the dead was regarded as sacred duty. Sacred duty. You guys are starting through Genesis and flock. In Genesis 23, 4 through 19, 15 verses are devoted about how Abraham took the body of Sarah and buried her himself. In Genesis 50, it talks about Jacob's body taken to the land of Canaan to be buried in a cave. Genesis 50, Joshua 24 talks about how Joseph's bones were carried from Egypt all the way to the promised land to be buried there. The ancestors of Joseph honored him by remembering his request and burying him in the land promised to Abraham. When Saul was slain in battle, David commends the men who took King Saul's body. Did not let it rot out in the open field, but buried King Saul. And David commends these men. He said in 2 Samuel 2, 4 and 5, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord by burying him. The great importance of proper burial provides the backdrop 
for the passages that speak of those who will not be buried because of sin and divine judgment. Burial shows honor and respect. Not burying someone was a sign of judgment because of their sins. Moses warned Israel in Deuteronomy 28 that if they disobey God's covenant, their punishment will be that their enemies will slay them and their unburied bodies will be food for animals on the earth and birds of the air. Remember Jezebel, the wife of that wicked king Ahab? She was a tyrant, an evil, idolatrous woman who led the nation astray, away from worship of Yahweh. She's eaten by dogs and becomes dung upon the fields. What does that mean? It means that she was eaten by animals and defecated on the field. She was not buried. That was her judgment because of her wickedness. Jeremiah warns his own generation with the same disturbing imagery. Dead bodies of this people be food for the birds of the air, beasts of the earth, and they shall not be gathered, they shall not be buried. Therefore, rabbis considered burial of loved ones as a sacred duty, almost equal to obeying the law, equal to Sabbath day worship, Equal to honoring God, burial of loved ones. Well, in light of this, in light of the purpose of funerals and burials is, to, burials is to honor the dead, in light of the importance of burials in the Jewish mind, it is all the more shameful at the dismal and inadequate funeral and burial that our Lord received. Shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. I should have titled it a few weeks ago, The Fivefold Shame of Christ on the Cross. Not only was he made to carry the cross himself, the instrument of his death, outside the city walls. Not only was he kicked out of the city. Not only was he shamed publicly. It wasn't a private execution. It was a public execution. Not only was he inscribed the derogatory inscription on top of his head as he was crucified. On top of that, his burial was dismal, inadequate coming close to being buried in a mass grave. Compare Ronald Reagan's funeral to our Lord's funeral. I mean, our Lord's funeral in John 19 is the most important funeral that ever took place in the history of the world. The most important funeral ever in all of history. Yet there is no eulogy. No one's bringing flowers. There is no mourners grieving over his death. There are no F-20 fighter jets streaming overhead, right, marking his passing. No flags at half-staff all over the country. There's no um, national mourning, no ornate casket, no long caravan to the gravesite. No honor given to him at all. We have to ask, where were his disciples? I mean, where were the 12, the 70 the 120, where were the throngs of people that greeted him when he entered into Jerusalem? Blessed is the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Where are all the people that greeted him into the city? Where are the throngs of people who ate the bread and took the fish in John 6? Where were all those who were healed? The blind that received sight, the deaf that received hearing, 
The paralytics were, were raised who could restore their health. Where were all these men and women? They were nowhere to be found. Jesus had died. His lifeless body hung alone on the cross waiting for a criminal's burial in an unmarked mass grave. Now, not just the shame of burial in an unmarked grave. If he was buried as a criminal in a mass grave, the evidence, the verification of his resurrection would be impossible. There is no empty tomb because he was buried anonymously with other bodies and there is clearly a a lack of evidence, further lack of evidence than if he was buried in in a secure tomb. And then something incredible happened. An unexpected source of help. I'll give verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away the body. Now, I told the 18 that the AC is not on, I'm not taking my jacket off, so... Uh, okay, well, wait, wait a few minutes, and I don't want to be sweating up here. It hinders my preaching, hinders the study of the Word of God. So, Joseph of Arimathea. This man comes forward to honor Christ. His disciples, apostles, forsake, forsook Christ and fled, yet he cares for Christ and delights to do him service, even though he is dead. There is nothing to be gained by Joseph. There is no agenda here. There is no angle. There is no vested self-interest in him doing this except for love for Christ. Except for his faith in Christ, in Jesus as the Messiah. Apart from his loyalty and love for him, there is no other reason for him to literally stick his neck out and do this honor on behalf of Christ. Who is this man? The four Gospels tell us uh, several things about Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27.57 tells us he was a wealthy man. He was the upper echelon of Jewish society. He was wealthy. He was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. Luke 23.51, one of 70 ruling elders of the nation of Israel. He was a member of the Supreme Court of Israel. He was... Someone who was devout. He was a devout Jew. He was a member of the Pharisees. But even among the Pharisees, there were those Pharisees who were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. They believed in Yahweh. They understood their sinfulness. And they were waiting like Simeon, like, like, like uh, uh, others, prophetesses. They were waiting for the coming of the kingdom. And he was one of them. Luke 23.50 says, He was good and righteous. And Luke 23.51 gives us an important information. He did not consent to their decision. He did not consent to their conspiracy to murder Christ. John tells us in verse 38, in fact, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower. He believed in Christ. But John adds, secretly, for fear of the Jews. 
You see how faith, how fear is the opposite of faith. How again and again the Bible says, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Have not fear. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Because the greatest threat to our faith in Christ is fear. And here is one of the ruling members of the Supreme Court of Israel. A wealthy man. man with prestige and power. And yet he is ensnared by fear. And so he does not act boldly. Though he does not agree with this, this evil conspiracy to murder an innocent man, as a judge, he does not speak out. He does not stand forth. He believes in Christ. In fact, he's a follower of Christ. But he does it in secret, hidden, cloaked in secrecy because of fear he is behaving. He was behaving as a sinful and cowardly man. He understood that they passed a law saying anyone who believes in Jesus will be excommunicated, ex-synagogued from the synagogue, the life of Israel. They'll be separated from Israel society, ostracized, and, and put out from um, Jewish, Jewish culture, society. So because of this sinful fear, he did not declare his faith until Jesus' death. Until Jesus' death. The cross of Christ gave power to his faith. Energized the word of God that was sown in his heart. Now, this is not in scripture, but I have to, I mean, my conjecture, my, my hypothesis is this, I think it's legitimate. Hear me out and we'll see if you agree. But, because Joseph was a man of God's word. He understood, he knew Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, he had memorized these verses as a child. I mean, remote memory. He knew them by heart. He knew the significance. He could explain Zechariah 12 better than I did last week. Right? I mean, he knew the scriptures, and here he is at the cross, and he sees these men, soldiers, gambling for Jesus' clothes. Psalm 22. He sees this Lord, King of Israel, pierced, his hands and his feet. Psalm 22. Like a lamb lets the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53. They see, he sees Christ. Where the robbers next to him, his bones are broken. But Jesus' bones are not broken. Psalm 22 again. And then, the piercing in his side. Like floodwaters, the truths of these prophecies... I am sure overwhelm his soul before his very eyes. All the scriptures that he had learned, studied and memorized come rushing to his mind and he sees it before his very eyes. And he realizes it is him. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one because he sees the prophecies being fulfilled. And so... These truths moved on him, realized and saw that Jesus didn't rescue Israel from a cold war, but rescued him from a cold heart. Didn't deliver him from them from, spirit, from economic recession, but uh, rescued him from spiritual bankruptcy, from evil and, and sin in his heart. So when it moved on him, gave him faith, that faith presented itself as courage.
as boldness. Mark 15.43 says that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, took courage, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Took courage. He had boldness. He went to Pilate and asked for the body. Luke 23.53 says, He took it down. He was a wealthy man, a member of the Supreme Court. He doesn't hire some people, some day laborers, to do this menial work. He so loves Christ, so believes in Him, so honors Him, He Himself takes down the body of Christ. Wraps it in a linen shroud. Laid it in a tomb, cut in stone, where no one yet had been laid. These are all actions of a man who believes. These are all actions of a man who loves, who trusts. And surprisingly, he was not alone. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Ah, Nicodemus, remember him? Right, 2001, right? Like 85 sermons ago. John chapter 3, turn there with me, right? It's an old friend of our church. <laughs> comes, comes at this desperate hour to care for our Lord. Nicodemus, remember, like Joseph, was a member of the Pharisee party. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the teacher of Israel, meaning he was the prominent teacher, the one who spoke with authority for the nation of Israel concerning the interpretation of the Old Testament. So ironic that the Pharisees murdered him, but two of his members are found here burying him. John recounts that this is a man who visited Jesus at night, and that's very important. Just as Joseph was a secret disciple, Nicodemus was also a secret disciple. John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Verse 2, came to Jesus by night. And John includes that because he came at night for a reason. He wanted to be hidden. He didn't want his faith to be known. He didn't want his association with Christ to be made public. So alone under the cloak of darkness, he comes to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Here is the teacher of Israel saying, Jesus, Rabbi, you are the teacher. And we know that you have come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Our Lord knows Nicodemus' heart all his life. He was a man about works. man about the law, obeying the law. Salvation through works. Salvation through obedience. Salvation through good works. And Jesus bypasses that and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, I know you. I know Joseph. You men are waiting for the kingdom of God. You have a right hope, right desire, but your path is through works, and that is impossible. You cannot see, you cannot enter God's kingdom unless you are born again. And Nicodemus is confused. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Capital S, small, lowercase s. 
salvation, entrance in the kingdom is not a work of the flesh. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, entrance to God's kingdom is not what you do, but it's what God, what, what God does, what the Holy Spirit does. Nicodemus, you have no control over being born again. It's the work of God through the Holy Spirit. He says again, you must be born again. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You heard sound, it's not where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not up to you, Nicodemus. You don't have control over your salvation. It's not try a little harder, obey a little more, pray a little longer. No, it's up to God. Up to His mercy, His grace, His decision. And then he goes down. So many things, but go down, let's go down to verse 14, and this is the crux of it. This is, uh, and we'll get to these verses later on, but I believe these are the verses that came to mind, came to Nicodemus' mind as he was burying Christ, and we'll get to that. But verse 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, our Lord is referring to Numbers 21. During their wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel, you know, they grumbled like the first week, right? We're studying through our survey of the Old Testament. Like the first week, they started grumbling. Their grumbling just increased. It spread like gangrene to the whole community. And Numbers 21 was when, like, even, even like the children grumbled. Like the whole community grumbled against God. And God was so angry, He sent fiery serpents into the nation of Israel. And everyone that the serpents bit, were filled with poison, and they died. Moses runs to God and says, Yahweh, don't do this to your people. Alright? You know, save your people. And so God provides a way of salvation. He says, lift up a bronze snake, a brazen snake, and lift it up high to sea. And everyone who sees the snake will be healed, will be delivered, will be saved. Our Lord refers to that incident of the snake being lifted up out of the land. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is an explicit prediction of Jesus' own death on the cross. That he will be lifted up. Then the same manner, he will be lifted up above the ground and all who look on me and believe will be born again. Will be born again. That's when we first were introduced to Nicodemus. Back to John 19. We see Joseph and Nicodemus. They are no longer secret disciples. Their days as a secret disciple, as secret disciples of Christ are over. How great the contrast between John 3 and John 19. He's no longer ashamed. They both love the Lord. They both love the Savior. And they claim the body of Christ. Now, there is added significance here. This is Passover week. It's Preparation Friday. Next day is the Great Sabbath. Sabbath of the Passover week. Anyone who touches a dead body is ceremonially unclean. 
they are defiled. They cannot enter the temple. They cannot eat with others. They are separated from, from, from their families, from Ju- Judaism. They are, uh, they are members of the Pharisees. They understand all these uh, ceremonial laws, ritual laws. Yet for them, their concern is not, not about ritual purity. Joseph wasn't concerned about entering a Gentile's house. Remember when they went to Pilate, the Pharisees would not enter uh, Pilate's house because it was Gentile. But he doesn't care. Because for them, their concern was faith in Christ. Their love for the Lord. Testimony to how much both Joseph and Nicodemus believed in Christ and loved Him. They both recognized that Jesus was the Passover Lamb. That they were not saved by works. They were not saved by the law. They were not saved by these rituals done over and over and over again. They were saved by believing in Christ. And so, they bury him. The Jews did not embalm bodies in the Egyptian manner, which involved mutilation by the removal of internal organs. No, they just washed the body. Anointed with oil or wrapped it with linens. In verse 39, John tells us that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. It is notable that this is the type of burial given to kings. The amount of myrrh and aloes that Nicodemus brought were amounts used for those in uh, the royalty. And that was the honor that Nicodemus and Joseph gave to Christ. Joseph, because it was after 3 p.m., 6 p.m., Sabbath starts, you can do no work, everything shuts down. There was a cave nearby that he had owned. No one had ever been laid on it. He laid Christ there and rolled the stone to cover the entrance after he anointed the body of Christ. They carefully buried him in his tomb. Another conclusive evidence that Jesus was indeed, that he had indeed died. It wasn't a fainting spell. It wasn't a swoon. He had given his life. Really, the, the climax of the story occurs in John 20. Our hope, our, our joy, our confidence, the proof that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, comes in John 20. So for now, let's just cruise back on verses 38 through 42 and consider some closing thoughts, closing thoughts, applications. First of all, Joseph and Nicodemus as secret disciples. This is a description, not an affirmation. It's a, descri- it's a descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible in no way endorses secret Christianity, covert discipleship, a private religion where it's a matter of faith, so it's in your heart between you and the Lord, and public acknowledgement has no uh, significance or importance. John is describing what happened. But the Bible is clear. Mark 8, 34-38, our Lord said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
I will be ashamed of him when I come in glory of the Father with the holy angels. Our Lord demands a public discipleship, a public confession, testimony, acknowledgement that one is a follower of Christ. So how do we explain Joseph and Nicodemus? Now let me get just briefly theological here, just very briefly. There are two terms to describe salvation, two of many. One is conversion, one is regeneration. Conversion is our perspective. It seems like a gradual perspective. Someone becomes converted and you're not exactly sure when he or she became a believer. Like Alex, he shared us with his testimony, his conversion story. But if you were to tell you, Alex, what date, what hour, what second were you saved? I don't know. So there was a period in his conversion where his faith was not sure. He wasn't living out the Christian gospel. He wasn't publicly testifying to the cross. But we would say it's a conversion was happening. But the other term is regeneration, God's perspective. And that's instantaneous. That's point in time. And that's exact at a specific time. Darkness into light. Child of the devil, child of God. Dead, lifeless spirit, full of life in the Holy Spirit. Blind, now I can see. That's God's perspective. John's describing conversion. They were secret disciples. Some point in time, God granted them faith. They were regenerate. They were believers. That's from human perspective. God's perspective is clear. They're unbelievers and they're believers. So from our perspective as conversion, what's important is not perfection, not perfect obedience, but the direction of your life. Direction of your life. If you're struggling and you're saying, I might be Joseph. I might be Joseph of John 12. I'm not doing what I know I ought to do. I should be speaking out, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of my family, my friends, my co-workers. I'm just afraid and anxious about the consequences of faith. So I'm living in secret, and my faith is hidden in my heart. You know, I'm like Nicodemus. I go to Christ at night. I go to church by myself. I don't tell anyone I go to church. I keep my Bible hidden. That's who I am. Well, am I a Christian or not? Well, that's up to God to reveal. But the Bible tells us it's not about perfect obedience. It is about direction. And it's clear from these men's lives that they began very poorly. They were complicit in the murder of Christ. Yet, they ended very well. They ended very well. All the disciples fled. But they they stood up. They crossed the line. They took the body, washed it, gave them a proper, honorific burial, displaying their faith in public. They overcame their fear. Fear of man, fear of losing friends, family, ostracized, rejected by their religion and culture. It is clearly seen here that they are not ashamed. They are not afraid. Second closing thought, again, back to the enemy of faith is fear. The battle in our hearts, the struggle is, am I going to trust in Christ or am I going to give in to my anxieties? Am I going to surrender to my fears? Rational, irrational, real or imagined, am I going to trust in Christ or trust 
the worries and anxieties about life and future. Proverbs 29:25, the fear of man lays a snare. It's bondage. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. John 9:22, the parents of the blind man who was born blind would not testify that their son was born blind. They would not tell the truth. Why? Because they were afraid. John 12, 42, 43, many of the authorities believed in Christ, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So, here are people believing in Christ, will not confess it because they are afraid of the Pharisees. Here are Pharisees who believed in Christ, they will not confess it because they are afraid of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not murder Christ in a public court because they were afraid of the people. Remember that? They were afraid of the masses that were gathered in Jerusalem and the riot that might occur if they were to murder Christ in a public court hearing. You see how fear is manipulating everyone to disobey Christ. Lack of physical, spiritual, or moral courage is devastating to faith in Christ. All of us, we need to confront our faith, our fears with faith in Christ. Deal with our worries and anxieties and ask, are we, am I going to trust God? Or am I going to trust in this world, trust my fears. We need to, brothers and sisters, so fear God. There's no room in our hearts for fear of man. Our hearts be so enlarged, so overwhelmed with awe and reverence and fear of our, of our great and awesome God. What can mere man do to me? As Christ said in Luke 10, fear not the man, fear not the one who can take away the body and can do no more. Fear the one who has authority over your body and eternity. It's so ridiculous, it's so ludicrous for us to fear this world. Right? When we should be fearing God who is sovereign, who holds eternity in His hands. It is not um, a fruit of the Spirit. It is not mark of uh, Christian maturity. It is not the spirit that we receive from the Father, right? You, know, you have children, you, oh, he got it from me, you know? Like your child eats a lot, oh, that's from dad. You know, a child sleeps a lot, oh, that's from dad again, you know? <laughs> it's all dad. You, you pass down, well, if a child of God has fear, that's not from God. That's not from our Father, right? That's an illegitimate uh, fruit from an illegitimate Father. Second Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but a power of love and self-control. Right. Third closing thought, I am persuaded, again, back to John three fourteen through 15 that snake incident in Numbers 21, I am persuaded that as Nicodemus and Joseph, especially Nicodemus, because he talked to Christ, and as he was in that cave, washing the body of Christ with his own hands, his clothes are bloodied with the blood of Christ. He goes through the piercings in his hands, piercings in his side. As they remove the crown of thorns from his head, they brush away his hair. I, as they anoint him with myrrh and aloes, anointing his body with oil, they put a linen over his scarred face. I, I just stand personally certain that he remembered his conversation with Christ. Right? He remembered what Jesus said. He remembered... Just as Moses raised a serpent in the desert, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him shall be saved. Because He just saw Jesus lifted up from above ground. 
and people looked on him. And he believed. See, all his life, Nicodemus trusted in his works to be saved. And the question that Nicodemus had for Jesus was this. Faith alone is impossible to save. How can one enter the kingdom of God by faith alone? You have to obey the law. And she said, no, Nicodemus. Remember Numbers 21? The Israelites were bitten by these fiery snakes. What did they do to be delivered? What did they do to be saved? What work did they do? They were in sin. They were being punished for their transgression against God. They simply looked to that serpent and was lifted up. And all they did was believe. All they did was trust in God's provision for healing and they were healed. Likewise, the Son of Man will be lifted up and all works of the law will not be required for it is impossible for you. All you need to do to enter God's kingdom is to look upon the Son of Man and believe. So I'm convinced that uh, John included this in his gospel because both Joseph and Nicodemus became believers and were followers, public followers of Christ. John's gospel was the last gospel to be written. There's no point in writing about these men and their detailed interactions with Christ or they were not currently among the community of believers. And how was, how are they saved? How was Nicodemus saved? Like how all of us were saved. Not by works of the law. We were saved by looking at Christ. Looking at the cross of Christ through the Gospels, through the Bible, and by trusting in God's provision for our sins. And one final closing thought, one final application. How do we honor Christ? You know, as believers, we love Christ. We love Him. We believe Him. He is our Lord and Savior. We want to honor Him. Well, we can't go to His funeral, right? We don't want to bury him again. We don't want to do that breaking the bread and drinking the cup. Jesus died once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. First Peter 3.18. No more funerals. Time to give flowers is over. How do we honor Christ? In fact, Christ is not even dead. He's alive. See that the right, right hand of the throne of God. How do we honor Christ? It is not by just, it's not by just preaching the gospel. Right? Honoring Christ, we think the only way to honor Christ is to preach the gospel. Honor, honor Christ, I'll evangelize. I'll share with my neighbors the gospel. Look at Joseph and Nicodemus. They didn't share the gospel. They didn't proclaim the kingdom. All they did, the great thing they did was took the body of Christ, went against their religion, went against their culture, their society, their family and friends, and buried Christ. Overcoming social pressure, overcoming the fear of man, they honored Christ. Not by just preaching the gospel. Likewise with us. Same with us. We honor Christ. His death and resurrection by making radical life decisions according to the words of Christ. Do you see that? It's not by just ministry. It's not by just evangelism we honor Christ, respect Him, revere Him. We honor Christ by our lives, by our life decisions. Where... Our decisions are so radical, so um, countercultural, right? So, um, you know, like against the stream of our culture, politically so incorrect 
that people have to ask. First Peter 3, what is the reason for the hope? Why did you make this decision? Why are you living this way? And you say, oh, because I want to honor Christ. Because I love the Lord. Because of the gospel of Christ. In the areas where our culture is against scripture, that's where we must stand. Right? And that's how we honor Christ. I mean, just, let me give you two illustrations and get in some applications. Like, the Korean Christian culture. I love the Koreans, right? I love Korean Christians. Nothing against them. I'm Korean Christian, so. But, in their culture, they prioritize ministry over family. And they venerate that example to the point where if you sacrifice your children, if your children are neglected, go without food and water, you know, they don't, they don't have, not care for, but you're doing ministry, it's an example in that, in that culture. If I was in that kind of culture, I would put family way above ministry. Because that's not biblical, right? I want to go against that culture because it's, in that area, they're not consistent with scripture. Now, in our culture, in our, America, we venerate children. Child center families, kids are worshipped, right? Parents live for the children. Where so many Christians put children above ministry, right? Like their lives are revolved around, you know, just all these leagues and, and you know, spelling bee contests, I don't know, whatever, right? And like ministry and gospel is like low on the totem pole. In this culture... Man, forget spelling bee, right? Forget all these things for kids. Here's one toy. You play with this one toy, right? That's all you need for life and godliness. We're gonna, we're gonna serve the Lord. Does that make sense? Right? By doing that, you're honoring Christ. Another example, you know, you go, you go, you, for if you go to missions to Pe- with Czech Republic with Peter, or if he comes here, you want to go out and eat fast food with him. And you'll, you'll notice something. After you're done eating, He'll wait around and pick up all the trash. He'll wipe the table. He'll pick up like food that you know people dropped off the floor. And I'm like Peter, like you know that's the work. That's what they're for. You're taking away union jobs, like you know. Let's go. But he does that. Why? I, I don't know why. But for me, it stands out in our culture, right? It stands out when you serve the servants, you serve the waiter, you serve the waitress. Which is like, why are you doing this? This is my job. I'm here to serve you. But if the person who's paying for the meal is serving the servants, you stand out. You say, I'm honoring Christ. You see how not just evangelism, but through life decisions, you can honor Christ. So, understanding, this is one principle, many applications. I do not want you to principalize the application. Right? I don't want the applications that I'm about to give where you know, this is like the principle. These are applications, direct and indirect. Understanding that, just some examples of way to honor Christ. Refuse to marry a non-Christian. Absolutely. It's non-negotiable. No questions about it. There's no debate at all because the Bible is clear. Can a believer be yoked with an unbeliever? What commonness has light with darkness? Right? Idols with Christ. No way. Your parents think, what's wrong with you? Man, He's rich with a good school. He's got a house, you know. He's, he's got a job. What more do you want, right? Or she's, you know, great. And she cooks well. I mean, everybody loves her. She's a non-believer. No, you'll make her a believer, right? He'll go to church. Man, your parents get angry. Your friends get angry. You stand your ground. Not even a question. 
You go against this culture. Why? Because in that way, you're honoring Christ. Why would you do that? Because I love Christ. What about husbands leading your family spiritually? In that way, you stand apart from this world. We're talking to an extended family member a week ago. She's married about two years, and we attended their wedding, and we're talking about their family and, you know, her and her husband, and she was saying, you know, our marriage is messed up, but we have no one to turn to because all our friends, their marriages are messed up. So we have no one to get counsel from, no one to ask, no one to get help from because everybody looks great outwardly, but you come close and they're all messed up. That's the culture. What's the culture? Men are selfish. They're out there, you know, workaholics, playing sports, playing games, hanging out with friends, neglecting their responsibility at home. Christian husbands, Christian men, we go against flow. We take seriously our responsibility to shepherd our wives, to love our wives as Christ loved the church by washing with the water of God's word and giving our lives for our family. We give our lives for our family, for our wives and children. That stands out because in the world, men like that do not exist. That doesn't happen. But by doing that, you are honoring Christ. Making a priority of your family. Another one, wives submitting to your husband. I mean, joyfully submitting to your husband, you're honoring Christ. I mean, I gave this illustration before. I don't want to, you know, our family is sinful, but I I don't have anybody else's illustration. I don't live with you guys. So we're... My wife and I were talking on the phone and she was at a bank or something and after she hung up, the lady was like, how do you talk to your husband that way? She's like, what do you mean? I've never heard a woman talk so respectfully to her husband. Right? It's a Korean bank. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's not heard of, right? How do women wives talk to their husbands? They're all like yelling at them, scolding them. She was standing out because she was respecting her husband, honoring him. When wives do that, man, like, among your family and friends, among your co-workers, anywhere, they, you will stand out. They can't believe, how did you so uh, shepherd your heart of rebellion and sin? That's impossible for me. My husband gets me so angry, I want to throw things at him. And yet you're here submitting to him with joy. In that way, you're honoring Christ. You're not preaching the gospel yet, but you're getting a platform to proclaim Christ. When you love your children, right? When you love children, and okay, maybe this personal Jameson soapbox, you know, you can edit it out. I have no problem with that. Edit it out. But having many children, right? You have to multiply, right? Two is replacement. More than two is multiplying. Okay, now you can stop editing, right? When you love your children, you stand up because all post-Christian cultures, all irreligious cultures, the birth rate is declining. Did you read this week on how Japan, they have a negative population because Japanese women don't have kids. South Korea, same thing. France, same. Germany, same. All post-Christian, irreligious societies, they stop having children. Why? Because they don't want to live for the next generation. They want to live selfishly. They, they're young. They want to go and sit at cafes and have wine. They want to see movies. They want to go clubbing. They want to enjoy. They want to go around and see the world. They don't want to raise children. Right? Raise a righteous generation for the next generation where they're gone and they don't benefit from that at all. They don't want that. So 
all these Western secular societies, population is decreasing. We go against that. Right? And so I can't tell you how many people, these are all yours? How many kids do you have? Why do you have so many kids? Because we love the Lord. We believe. Right? That it's a joy to raise a righteous generation of children who will one day be a salt and light to your kids who will need <laughs> the salt and light of our children. Right? Two more. Uh, I mean, again, embrace your God-given roles. Embrace your God-given roles. And the world says, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter if you're old or young, doesn't matter who you are, do whatever you want. You have the freedom. For us, we embrace the role that God, God has given us as men, as women, husbands and wives, as children. We know our assigned role from God and we embrace it. And when we do, we stand out, we honor Christ. And finally, you know, we honor Christ when we uh, give ourselves for the purpose of uh, personal ministry to people, to fellow believers, to the lost. In the world, is look out for number one. You, know, you have your worries, I have my worries. Don't bother me with your worries. You have your business, I have my business. Right? Don't vent at me. Don't complain. Don't unload your burdens to me. I have my own anxieties. As Christians, we don't do that. Right? We take burden. We care for souls. We lay ourselves down to serve others. We don't live for ourselves. We live in a self-obsessed self-pleasing, self-consumed society and culture. Christians, we live selflessly. We live to be an encouragement. We, love, we live to serve and exhort and be, to be a blessing to others in that way. Here we stand out. And that way we're honoring Christ. We're loving Him. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we do thank you for men like Joseph and Nicodemus. We do not look down upon their years as, as secret disciples. All of us, we've been there. We can identify. All of us, we're not immune to such fears. We're not ignorant or they're not foreign experiences to us. Such fears, worries, anxieties, we know them intimately. But at great cost, O oh Lord, they showed honor and love to Christ and what an example that is to us, how far that they, they came, how much uh, they've, they've, they've grown uh, and that encourages us, that challenges us. Oh Lord, help us to, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by trusting in You, not in our works, help us trust in You and thereby stand and honor Christ, the living Lord in our lives, in our day-to-day life decisions, may we make such radical, counter-cultural, politically incorrect decisions that we will stand out as salt and light in this darkened, wicked generation. All not to make ourselves look good, but to make Christ look good, to, to honor and, and, and raise high the cross of Christ. As people ask us the reason for the hope that we have, the reason for our decisions, we would say, it would point to you, point to the gospel, point to the grace and mercy and the goodness of God, and that we would be Joseph and Nicodemuses to others in our generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.